Here we go. Hey guys, welcome to another week of the Two Guys on Politics podcast featuring me, Brian Broking. And I'm Bill Lipinski. And I'm Ray Hanania. And this week we're kind of trying to do a little bit of a catch up on the, the current happenings in Ukraine and the different European countries kind of look outlook on the state of the conflict and what's going on. So I know you're not so, a I know you're not a Russian sympathizer calling it the current happenings because that's the way they like to describe it. <laughs> um, so, so what is happening in Ukraine? Okay, right so what's happening that's new? Uh According to everything that I have read, both France and Germany, uh, two of the largest uh, part of the Western Alliance in Europe, uh, would like to see this war come to a close as soon as possible. Uh, they think that uh, the longer it goes on, the more difficult it becomes with their relationship with the Soviet, oh, Soviet Union, that died a long time ago, with the Russian Federation, so they'd like to close it down. They'd like to see Ukraine accept the Russians in the eastern and southern part of Ukraine, and we get on with business. Uh, now, Germany, who has beat their chest on how wonderful they've been in being united with the rest of Europe in the United States, they have sent less money and less weapons to help Ukraine than Estonia has. France, I frankly don't know what France has, has sent. No one seems to be able to find out what it is that they have sent. Uh, maybe some old French helmets from the First World War, that might have been it. Uh, but both of those countries want to see things get concluded. On the other hand, uh, the fighting Poles are prepared to invade Russia this afternoon if necessary, uh, because they know they might possibly be next. So they want to make sure that it's fought out with a lot of help from the West and from uh, the Ukraine, as long as they're still out there. Now, Brian, you were saying that you just read that Germany is doing something uh, special in regards to Ukraine. Yeah, there was just an agreement between you know the U.S. and Germany to supply Ukraine with kind of advanced weapons, you know, surface-to-air missiles, different kind of war javelins, etc. Um, so I, I guess I didn't see where exactly the Germany's desire to get off the situation. I, I think at the end of this day, the, the conflict is going to be resolved with the, you know, the European, the Western European countries weaning themselves off of Russian natural gas and oil. And it's, it's more of that. And they can say all they want, but at the end of the day, they, they kind of need to keep stability within Russia to keep powering their own countries. I, I was going to say that, uh, Oh, well, first of all, when we talk about Germany and France, two of the weakest uh, countries during World War II, Germany pretty much collapsed under Hitler's, you know, un, you know, qualified uh, takeover. How he did that, it really was an uh, uh, embarrassment for the German people. And France flipped pretty quick, too. Uh, the Poles and Czechoslovakia tried to fight, but um, the Nazis rolled over them. So I'm not surprised that those two countries, Germany and France, are going to do it again. Um, but if uh, and it's all about economy, that's all they care about. Um, I and, you know, you know, my feeling about this, that uh, we can't let we can't compromise with the Russians um, because I, I'm you and I all and we all know that 
if Russia were to go into, let's say, Germany at some point, and, you know, people say, oh, that's not possible. Um, you know, there, there was a time when the Berlin Wall separated the, the city in half and there was an Iron Curtain. So I, don't, I, don't, I still think it's possible. Um, they would want us to come in full force and do everything and, and not say, oh, let's surrender part of the land, you know, to the Russians just to get a... Uh, uh, a compromise and an end to the conflict, because if Russia continues, you know, it's uh, uh, this conflict um, long term, it's bad for everybody. And we have to put Russia down in a, in a way where they can't do this again. I'm not sure if we have the will to do that. I don't think we do have the will to do that. I don't th I'm not. So we can't do that unless we're going to invade Russia itself. And we're not going to invade Russia itself. Uh, the United States they are giving these new uh, rockets to the Ukraine, and they've said to the Ukraine now, you know, you can use these to take back your territory in Ukraine, but don't be shooting any of these rockets into Russia. Right. We don't want to expand the war in it. Of course, the Russians are very upset that we have now given them these rockets. The people who want a victory uh, over the Russians, they're not going to get it because we are not gonna pay the price that it would be necessary to take back all of that Ukrainian territory and to re remove Putin from office. I believe that the United States uh, should sit down with the president of Ukraine and say, listen, we've given you all this money, we've given you all this equipment, we've gotten so many other people behind you, but it's time to sit down and work something out with Putin. Now, if they can't work something out with Putin, well, then we'll have to go in another direction. But I can't believe that at this stage of the game, he's taken enough of a beating. I think he'd be willing to cut some kind of deal. But I don't know if the Ukrainians are willing to give, give up any of their territory. So uh, this war, if it keeps grinding on and grinding on, each and every week, we seem like we get closer and closer to inserting American troops into this. I mean, we've come miles and miles from what we gave them originally to what we're giving them now. Well, okay. I well, I know that. it. I know it's hurt. Uh, you know, our economy. A lot of people are saying, "Look at this has really driven up inflation. Price and costs have gone up. Businesses are suffering." Um, but I have to say, imagine how we're suffering. Imagine how what the Russians are really going through themselves. So they have to be suffering 10 times worse than us, but with the understanding that they've lived in an oppressed society for many years. So their the level of suffering of, is relative. That's the history of the Russian Federation. Though. That's the history of Russia going back two, 300 years, back to, you know, even before World War I, the, the whole history of Russia has been trying to keep up with the West. And the West's sphere of influence has continued to expand because the idea is if you want to join, you can join. When the Soviet Union fell, we didn't ask any of these countries, Romania, Poland, et cetera, to join NATO. They all wanted to because they saw that as a victory. And that's really the true way to push back Russia is leaving that open. You're never going to change the way the Russian people are. That's just simply how that country works. And going in and invading, doing these separate things, you, you can't accomplish anything that way. But at the same time, you need to look at Zelensky, who... So there's a lot of reports, right, that the most corrupt country in 
Europe was Russia. But really, the second most corrupt country in Europe was probably the Ukraine before the whole war. And you even saw that in polls where Zelensky was, yeah, the prior president. But even under Zelensky's kind of reign as as president, the, the gas industry is just as corrupt as the oil barons in Russia as well. If, if you're disagreeing, the only difference is there's free public discourse in Ukraine and there is not in Russia. And that's the clear difference. And you, I think we need to have the resolve to help them fight for it, especially since this president, Zelensky, has a 70%, 80%, 90% approval rating in these polls. He has won the hearts and minds of the people. And if they have the desire to keep fighting, you should let them keep fighting. It's their war to fight. It's been their war since the start. We never said we'd send troops. We send supplies. They want to keep fighting. They should. And that's the way we should let it go. You think we should send additional supplies over what we have sent them so far? I think we should keep supplying them until they no longer want to fight. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I don't like the idea of, per, listen, perception is reality. Uh, facts don't mean anything in today's world. It's the perception. And the perception is that the Russians are able to keep even a fifth of the territory, that Donetsk region that they are fighting for now, mainly by, you know, uh, using long range cannons and, you know, bombings and attacks, really destroying the country. Um, I, I think the perception is Russia will win and it shows how weak the United States is. It shows how weak NATO is. Um, we've, you know, basically tried every opportunity to, to satisfy the Russians. We keep talking about our limits, but Russia keeps finding a new way to move forward. And forward movement, that perception, I think, they may be suffering and losing a lot of business under our sanctions, um, but in the end, if they're allowed to get away with what they got, they're gonna look like the big winners and people are gonna be afraid to stand up to them. You're saying that the United States has lost somehow here? They, they will if we step back and if we allow Russia to do what it's continue to do what it's doing in the Ukraine. Nobody's saying to Russia, you need to withdraw back to Russian territory and leave the Ukraine. What we're saying is, hey, we need to get Ukraine to accept the reality. It may not be oh, the United, best. I haven't heard anybody in the United States say that. I haven't heard Joe Biden say that. Uh, there are other countries that are saying that. But the United States hasn't said that. The United States is continuing to support Ukraine to a degree far higher than any other country is supporting Ukraine. But I'm saying to you, how long do we continue to do that? How much are we willing to pay? Now, I know the Ukrainian people have suffered a great deal. And really, in this country, we haven't suffered that much. We got high gas prices. We really got high gas prices more because of all the money the federal government has spent more than uh, not having uh, you know, access to uh, the Russian oil and gas. In fact, if we really needed more oil and gas, we can drill it in you know, North Dakota, South Dakota, and probably Wyoming and Colorado and a few other places, but we don't do it. My simple point is, I don't know what price we, the United States of America, is prepared to pay to keep up this war. But see, that's the question that I think is the problem. You know, the fact that we're asking what the price is, how far should we go um, in the face of this type of tyranny is what makes us weak. And I'm not saying you're weak. I'm saying that there is a discussion today 
At what point do we stop doing what we're doing? We're not saying at what point do are we able to push the Russians out and then end it the right way? That's what we should be focused on. Um, so from that perspective, if the Russians keep even a fifth of the country that they have right now, if the war ended right now, the Russians would look like the winners. We would look like the losers. We would look like the weekend because our coalition is divided. Um, we can't seem to agree on things. We make exceptions for everything. And it turns out that we're much more susceptible to Russian pressure than we ever believed. I didn't realize how much dependency there was on Russian oil until this war. And that's scary. It should never oh. have gotten that far. Western Europe is dependent on it, but we're not dependent upon well, it. Well, we depend on Western Europe. NATO, that was by design, though. They wanted to do that. They yeah, opted they into that. Right. That's we were part trying of to what help building the alliances are. Yeah. yeah. But when That's, we thought the Russians were going to be fair, you know, allies and friends, but it turns out that the Russians are wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, well, after the Berlin Wall fell, we sent billions of dollars over in the early 2000s. We spent billions of dollars over. Most of that money completely disappeared. It's clearly a corrupt state. There's no question about that. But at the same time, it's look at it from their side. They've been essentially the you know, ugly stepchild their entire careers. They've been oppressed by the West in their view for 250 years. And they're going to try and fight to maintain some of that. But at the same time, they're simply just falling behind. The more open the West is, the open discourse of the West is what pushes it forward. Not determining where some lines are drawn of mostly Russian citizens already in those regions or Russian speaking people. That's very, very true. Now, I'm going to not say any more about the situation because uh, I know we want to move on to another topic. All right. Political discourse, but I think you mentioned, right? The next time we talk about the Russian-Ukrainian situation, I want to know from both of you guys, what new territory have the Ukrainians recaptured from the Russians, okay? Well, maybe with these new weapons that we've given them that have uh, a reach of over 150 miles, um, it could make a difference because it has the Russians riled up. Okay. I've All said right. my piece on this subject. And now- so, uh, so the next topic I wanted to talk about was the kind of state of political discourse in America. And maybe- reflected a little bit right of, here among the three of us, right? Uh, we, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what your opinion is after I lay this, this topic out. So I, I think political discourse and the way it, it works in, in this country has changed over the past couple of decades. A lot of that has been due to technology, movements in, you know, subgroups within the country. But you can kind of think of political discourse as kind of three things. So there's the, the what is, you know, you're, you're living in a world with a history and science that determine it. What it should be, which is, you know, philosophy, ethics, your outlook on what an ideal society is, and how to get there. And that's what re we really think about most of the time at least throughout history, is what people disagree on is how to get there. But there's been a, a kind of change in the way we view the world in that people can't agree on the science and the history anymore. People can't agree on what the world should be anymore. So it doesn't even matter that we're basically trying to get to the same spot 
as we were in the 40s, 50s, 60s, with a common enemy of, you know, repel Russia, repel the Nazi invasion. That was a common, what the world should be, we should be without these things. And it was just the, the strategy on trying to tackle it. Now we can't even agree on simple, you know, how history developed, how science works, what the world should be. We disagree on those core fundamental beliefs now. And I think that's where a lot of this, this issue in political discourse stems from. I think it's been, I was going to say, I think it's been an angry political discourse, you know, uh, damaged by the divide that separated the right from the left. You know, we don't have any middle ground. And I think that's one of our, you know, bills and our goal as a group has always been to kind of try to define this voice in the middle. We don't have to agree. And we can even pick and choose from the tree on both sides of the tree. But, you know, we try to focus on the middle. Uh, but not too many people want to do that. They, they seem happy to be, you know, the internet reinforces the idea that you could say whatever you want and lose your emotion and be angry in doing it. So that's, that's a perfect point. And the exact next thing I wanted to hit on is the way we currently view politics in America is right versus left. We think of only two entities being there. And then we think the far left and the far right are too far out there and there's no middle. And, and we talk about finding a middle. But I think there's, there's another kind of 2D chart of American politics of four squares. In the top, you have high-rung Democrats and high-rung Republicans. And then you have what you just mentioned, kind of the people online, you know, the trolls, low-rung Democrats and low-rung Republicans. And the idea is we've kind of shifted the incentive system in America away from pulling to high-rung political discourse to kind of low-rung, you know, I got the other side, ah, this. We, we no longer have this common enemy of, you know, Russia. No one really you know, the Soviet Union, the Nazis, et cetera. That, that isn't a, a common goal for America anymore. Instead, we're kind of pulled to these ends where even if you look at Russia's meddling in the past couple of years, what is it? Republicans pointing at Democrats as, you know, them being the ones meddling in the elections. And they're right back at it. The Democrats spent a year impeaching the president for, you know, supposedly being on Russia's side and meddling with his own elections, right? So we've kind of changed the incentive system to drag towards low rung, not high rung politics in this country. Um, well, I, th I think the problem is that when I went to, I'll give you an example. When I went to Congress, there were 64 pro-life Democrats in the House of Representatives. Today, I'm, I'm not sure if we still have one or if he lost his primary uh, in Texas, because the last I saw a couple of days ago, they were still counting votes. But there was a, there's only one or perhaps none. Uh, they really, how do you, and, and that's just one issue. There's numerous other issues that the parties are so significantly divided on. When I first went to Congress, there was no problem with me sitting down in talking to Republicans about particular legislation. Quite frankly, there was no problem with me voting with Republicans uh, on a number of occasions because you had the freedom to do that. But 
what has happened since that time to today to make people so angry? And I believe what one of you has mentioned earlier, I believe it's the internet and all these people being able to get on and talk about these things in the harshest terms. I listened to uh, the liberal station here at a progressive station here, 820, and I watch occasionally uh, Tucker Carlson or Tucker, whatever his last name is, is it Carlson? Yep. Or is that a football player? Okay. And uh, Sean Hannity, just to say what they're talking about. I mean, these people, they don't belong on the air. They don't belong, you know, espousing the things that are espousing. Of course, it's America. We have freedom of speech. It's too bad we don't have enough people in this country who are really willing to get involved in it on that high level that Brian is talking about. But we don't at the present time. Well, part of that stems from kind of the, the state of media. As you just said, you know, these guys don't belong in the air. The, the change in the media landscape over the past couple of decades has been, you know, it's more accessible. It's easier to produce media. It's easier to create almost niche sections, you know, there's things like the Young Turks on YouTube, which are a far left group. There's the Daily Wire, who's generally considered pretty far right. The, these kind of entities are gaining a lot of power and traction, and they only need to cater to their own subsect, right? They only need to care, cater to the people they've drawn on in the first place. So there's no longer a, a draw up of you want to attract the entire base. You instead want to attract, you know, percentages of the base. You know, you want a piece of the group and bring them to your side and then monetize that. And that's kind of how media has changed where, you know, 50 years ago, there were three TV stations that, you know, you had the nightly news and they needed to broadcast to the entire country, one nightly news. And that's completely different from today. Yeah, I, I think the, the issue is the absence of a, a moderate personality. I think people... Um, are focused on themselves. Tucker Carlson sees uh, an opportunity to build up his base uh, by pandering to this extreme right. Um, and I see a guy like uh, Senator Schumer uh, basically doing the same thing to build up his uh, perception by pandering to the far left. They're progressives like the squad, you know, that are pandering to a certain group of people. But I don't see a personality driving to bring everybody together. And I, I think that that's allowing all these uh, extremists to build their base and, you know, carve out their, you know, part of their niche or their table. Um, one way I think would be to do it would I would I mean, ideally, if we were to I don't know how we could do this, but if we got rid of political parties and based, you know, elections solely on the uh, driven by issues um, and that we voted on issues. And uh, because I know Demo some Democrats and some Republicans share the same issues. Um, if we could vote on issues, we might be able to, you know, deal with things in a different way. Right now, there's a loyalty factor. Um, if you're a Republican and you don't vote Republican, you're viewed as a traitor. Um, and uh, the Democrats don't treat you any better. And it's the same way, you know, in reverse. So I think we were missing our personalities have changed. And I think that does have a lot to do with the corruption of the media uh, that suddenly found itself needing to do this, you know, uh, incitement, you know, through rhetoric to uh, build up their profits. And we see this in the House now, too, 
right? With the omnibus packages that they pass, they, they shove anything under the sun in these massive bills and then just say, if you're a Democrat, you vote for this. If you're a Republican, right. you don't. And maybe a Republican agrees with 40% of the stuff right. in that bill. They're still going to vote no because, you know, it's taken as one isolated group of things. Now, when this country was founded, George Washington and other founding fathers were totally and completely opposed to political parties. They said political parties are detrimental, you know, to a free society. Unfortunately, by the time Thomas Jefferson was elected president, we had political parties. So it didn't take us long to veer from what the founding fathers really saw is the best way to govern this country. We're never gonna get rid of the parties we have. What we're gonna to have to do is find a party that will represent the middle, if at all possible. Now, because of this day and age and TV and podcast, the internet, all that kind of stuff, takes a lot more money to be involved in run for office now than it did 25, 30, 40 years ago. But I just wanna say one thing though, and then I will uh, be quiet and you two fellas can duke it out the rest of the way. I remember very well back when there were three networks, CBS, ABC, NBC, nationwide. Everybody got the same news from these three different channels. Now, at the time, many people didn't realize that every single commentator, every single producer, on these three networks were to the left of center. They were driving the thinking of this country in that direction. And there really were, the, the conservative commentators were only on radio. They were never allowed to be on television because the prevailing opinion was this country should be left of center. Once you got the fairness doctrine, uh, by the federal government saying that you can't have anybody on and let anybody say what they want to say. In the proliferation, a lot of people started out wanting to get back at these left of center commentators who were on the three main channels. Uh, it spread a long way from there. And I don't think we could ever put the genie back in the box, but something has to be done in this country because these wedge issues that come up automatically drive more and more people apart. Yeah, I, I think George Washington was correct that, uh, you know, the more emphasis on political parties, the worse it is for us. And um, we've gotten away from issues. The loyalty is to the party rather than to the ideal or the belief. And I think that's part of our problem. And I think the media feeds into it. So, but anyway. And part of that is due to the, the way our election systems work in this country, right? They're, they're specifically set up for two parties. A third party doesn't exist in this country because that's not how our electoral system works. If you look at the UK, another you know good democracy in basically anyone's opinion, they've got three, maybe four, if you, you count the last piece, relevant parties. And they kind of have a different split there. And I'm sure that has its own problems, but that would be the way to get a, a third centrist party in this country is change the electoral system in it. You know, one like uh, parliamentary system. No, I was. Yeah. See, I think we have a parliamentary system now, and I think that's wrong. A parliamentary system means everybody in a particular party 
uh, has to toe the line, has to vote the way the leadership tells them to vote. I think that is, is what has happened this, in this country. That's why you can't get Democrats to support Republicans or Republicans to support Democrats. We have to go back more closely to a real Republican form of government and not the type of parliamentary government we're having at the present time. I know I said I was going to stop. No, that's all right. But stop talking again. It's an interesting thing. And my, my last comment is uh, that, uh, you know, there was one system that kind of responded to this uh, two party system. And that was the one that Pat Quinn destroyed uh, in Illinois, where you were guaranteed uh, uh, an opposite party voice in a district where you, if you had two Democrats, you had to have one Republican. If you had two Republicans, you had to have one Democrat. So it created a balance through the state and forced people to have to work together to learn how to do it. Now it's uh, Quinn introduced that bill, destroyed that system. And uh, now it's whoever's stronger and the stronger dominates everything. And there's no longer consensus. I'd love to see our country switch to that policy where in an area that's completely democratic, there should be a certain percentage of Republicans. And in an area where it's completely Republican, there should be a certain percentage of Democrats. And when you look at the country that way, it just might bring a balance. But who knows? Yeah. Maybe we'll have to look at that in future weeks, see the uh, All right. possible solutions to this, this kind of imbalance. But uh, I, I think that's uh, enough for this week. So uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up. I'm, I'm Brad Broking. I'm Bill Lipinski. And I'm Ray Hanania. We'll see you guys uh, see you next week. We'll see you guys next week. All right. Hang on a second.